Her dad is a former engineer who built lasers and propulsion systems. Her mom is a multilingual former Peace Corps volunteer. Dr. Heather Knight has molded his mind and her heart into a very unique field of robotics, building emotional, playful, social robots. My entire PhD thesis came from the first two weeks of this acting class that I took um, in the drama department on uh, movement, uh, I think it was called Movement for Actors. Um, and I, I literally spent the next three years trying to get a robot to communicate via motion in, in, in a way that was similar to the first two weeks of that class. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is Dr. Heather Knight, Assistant Professor of Robotics at Oregon State University. Her Charisma Research Group uses methods from entertainment to bootstrap the development of social robots. Dr. Knight also runs Marilyn Monrobot, a robot theater company with comedy performances and an annual robot film festival. Knight was named to the Forbes list 30 under 30 in science in 2011 and Adweek's top 100 creatives in 2017. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first became interested in this area of robotics and in building these so-called charismatic, social, playful, emotional robots. Well, I fell in love with robots by building them. I went to MIT as an undergrad and my freshman year, um, someone in my dorm worked in a robotics lab and just so it was a random internship and um, they made really cool robots uh, that related with people and had expressive faces and listened to the tone of your voice and it was it was just a lot of fun to see how people reacted to the systems that we were building. I was hooked. What were your areas of interest as a kid and, and did, did that influence your career decision in any way? Well, I always liked reading and traveling. I was on the debate team for a little while. Uh, I, it's kind of funny because I was trying to decide between engineering and writing. I wanted to be a writer at one point, um, but these days I get to kind of write robot characters by building them and coming up with their software. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Your research group is called Charisma. What does that stand for? And, and what does it mean to have these so-called performing charismatic robots? Yeah, yeah, I've really fallen for the word charismatic robots, like our phrase charismatic robots over the last, I don't know, 10 years. I just, uh, this idea that you could have machines in your life that uh, are useful, but they also add value and that you enjoy being around. So that's what I, I really mean by using the word charisma. Um, but uh, as a nerd, of course, we have to make everything an acronym. So it is... <laughs> <laughs> it's collaborative humans and robots, interaction, sociability, machine learning, and art. And that's the name of my research lab at Oregon State University. And what are the kinds of things you do there? <laughs> yeah, so I, I have a bunch of students, both graduate students and undergrads in uh, computer science, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, mostly even um, human-computer interaction. Uh, and we make robots that operate around people. So, so half of our stuff is like robot furniture, really simple robots or robots that are running around the building asking you to do exercises. Um, and then the other half of our stuff is robots that can be in performance settings. So we have a 
robot comedy system. Uh, we had a robot that was in an opera um, in one of the music department's productions this past fall. Uh, it was it was um, playing a statue, so it was it was well cast. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the history and evolution of of social robots and and kind of how it dovetailed with your career and interest. I know you worked with one of the the key people in the early days whose work led to the evolution of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said I fell in love with robots by building them, but I was also building them with someone super inspiring. Um, so Professor Cynthia Brazil, uh, she is, you know, kind of the mother of the field of social robotics. So she had created in the late 90s this robot called Kismet um, that imitated infant caretaker interactions. It had big eyes and it, you know, uh, if, it, if you were giving it too much information, it looked overwhelmed so that you'd slow down. And so she was working in an AI lab. And so her idea was that we could use these social strategies of communication to be able for the robot to kind of limit the data that it was receiving from you to a level that it could handle. And so it's by using these cues, we just sort of automatically is like, oh no, okay, like she's tired now. I need to wait till later. So much like we would do with like a, a, a student learner that's a person, you know, or even a kid. So what's the current state of play in robotics? I mean, I guess most people are familiar with the Roomba, right? Is that the vacuum that goes around you're looking totally, playful, but actually yeah. doing some work? But what, what else is going on in the, in the space? Yeah, robot vacuum cleaners have definitely been the most successful consumer robot um, uh, so far. Do uh, you, you know that cows have a lot more robots than we do? Like they're surrounded by robots. They have robots that like scratch their back, that help milk them. Um, like cows that have already received the robot revolution. It's kind of funny. Um, and they really like them. They're like, this feels good. <laughs> you mean on farms and things? It's all. It's yeah. All like in, in farms. Like, so if, you know, like if, you know, you have, you have very full udders, it's uncomfortable. So you can just walk yourself to the milking station. Like it's not the robot chasing you. It's more like, oh, of course I want a back massage right now. Um, I mean, I, I would want that. <laughs> So but, how did you start uh, building these things? How do you, how does one go about it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, there's so much more stuff out there right now. So I think I've been in the field for like 18 years now. And when I started was around when the Roombas were first coming out. And there was no such thing as like drone wedding photography or, you know, now there's even these like security robots that operate in some malls and stuff that are also starting to like, I don't know, give coupons or other kinds of stuff. Like, like the use of robots has become something that we're actually familiar with now, whereas it was only sci-fi when I started. So it's been fun seeing um, robots on the shelves now. Yes. And I think on a lot of college campuses now, you're actually having robots deliver pizzas. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, pizza, burritos, you know, sometimes they actually have people in like uh, less expensive labor economies controlling those robots, which I actually think is a kind of useful solution because it is hard to program all of the possible social rules and expectations that we have for robots into a robot that's running around with like bicycles and people and skateboards on a college campus. So, I mean, a lot of these systems um, uh, have humans in the loop when they're in really complex spaces. And I, and I actually think that that's kind of neat um, uh, because it is really difficult to, to kind of get up to speed in the human world. So when we can collaborate with robots, that's, that's a big direction of the field right now, rather than automation um, is collaborative robots, at least for dealing with applications that are around people. So I think that's kind of neat. So it could literally have a person in the loop, like a, the Wizard of Oz or something, um, but it could also 
you know, just have someone nearby. Or if the robot gets lost, it can be like, hey, could you touch the place on the map where we are? Because I'm totally lost. Fascinating. And you had a reference on your website to minimal social robots. What does that mean? Um, so I'm, I'm referring to robots that don't have those big eyes and expressive faces. Um, the, so, you know, you always have to be a little bit different from your parents, right? So if, if Cynthia is my academic mother and, and like Reed Simmons at Carnegie Mellon was like who I did my PhD with. So, uh, but yeah, but the, I'm, I'm really interested in things like, like chairs or boxes or even like a, like a little like swimming robot under the water or a drone. So how can they communicate through motion so or be curious so if you had a drone that was sort of in the area but it was kind of peeping out from behind a tree you would immediately be like oh I, I wonder if it's curious about me but it's also a little shy so <laughs> so I've been having fun using um, either groups of robots or sequences of motion or um, relative location and stuff to to try to communicate um, through channels that that even simple robots have and one of the areas of interest for you uh, is the multi-robot, multi-human interactions. How does that work? Yeah. So at the beginning of the field, uh, a lot of people were thinking about these one-on-one -on -one interactions. So I, we mentioned the infant caretaker. You could also think of like in movies, like um, you have the robot servant that's just, you know, bringing you, you, you know, scrambled eggs or whatever it is. Like, um, and, uh, but, but this, the use cases of robotics that sometimes are most effective from like a cost perspective are where you have lots of people. Um, so robots are kind of expensive for all of us to buy. So maybe instead of us all having our own personal robot, we can have robots in museums or robots in restaurants or robots on stage and then, or groups of robots at a reception that are delivering food, but then the lights change and they, they all do like this little disco number and then they go back to being <laughs> the servers again. Um, so I, you could just, particularly in that minimal robot case, like the, where they're really simple form, there are these things that you can do in formations of robots that are uh, much like chore choreographing dance, um, you know, uh, that, that I think are really fun to play with or that I would like to see more of in the future. As your work evolved, you started looking at combining entertainment with robotics and you set up your company, Marilyn Monrobot. What does Marilyn Monrobot do and, and, and how do you combine entertainment with robotics? Great question. Um, yeah, so, so Marilyn Monrobot was a robot theater company that I started I believe in like 2012 when I was living in Brooklyn. It was fun going to like the you know, like city hall and registering my little company. Um, but yeah, it was, I was doing a lot of engineering work at the time and I was excited to just have an umbrella for doing really creative projects. So we started out and we were doing um, uh, robot comedy. Uh, I had a, a history before of designing Rube Goldberg machines in LA with a group called Sin Labs. Um, we did a music video with OK Go, This Too Shall Pass, which was really fun. So we'd made interactive art installations. Uh, and it's just funny because I, I, looking back, I kind of just thought the interactive art stuff or technology-based art was just a kind of side hobby to keep things fun. And Marilyn and Robot kind of started that way. And now I have my entire lab 
charisma <laughs> that's around that and, and you know, students that are working for me and believe that I mean what I'm saying and come in with all these great ideas. And so now we've been doing stuff in charisma with like robots and improv. Like I mentioned that before, this robot that was actually in an opera production, um, you know, Don Giovanni, like <laughs> <and so it's laughs> funny, like they, they come up with as many ideas as I do. What was the most uh, creative one that you've had? Uh, I mean, I mean, data, data, the robot, my, my now robot. I mean, this is like my, my seminal co-performer. It's funny because we, we were performing comedy together, um, or with first the now robot, uh, the, both were now robots, but first data then ginger for like seven years. And so we, we would do shows like, um, once or twice a month all over the world, actually, like we've been in Israel and, uh, you know, a lot of Western Europe and across the United States. Like, I think I, I brought one to Mexico one time. I, I mean, we've been all over the place and, and it was, uh, we, I'd be on the airplane with the robot and we'd make jokes with the security guards. Oh yeah. In India, like, I, I told, uh, I told them that I had a robot named Ginger and they're like, Oh, is it sidekick Tamari? Like they, you know, it was, so I've had this long journey. Um, I think when you go on tour with a robot, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So I used to joke that I, I, I would get in trouble if I didn't say that um, Ginger or, or, or Data were my favorite robots. So between the two of them, they're my favorites. What was it like when you began to pitch this idea of researching, combining entertainment and robotics and, you know, robot opera or, or whatever? Did you get a positive reaction or did you get some raised eyebrows from the <laughs> I mean, establishment? As long as it was a hobby, it was fine. It's just when I started to make that my career, the people were like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. But, you know, as they say, sometimes when people call you crazy, you know you're onto something. Um, <laughs> because if it didn't seem crazy, someone else would have been doing it already. And, you know, there are a handful of people that have played at the intersection of entertainment and robotics, but you know, honestly, like, uh, we all know each other, like, <laughs> like, and it's, it's, this is like, you know, you can count them on the fingers of your hands. Like, um, we had a really phenomenal day long, um, art and robotics workshop in Montreal last March, um, at this big robotics conference. And it was so fun. Like, it's so fun to see people, um, that are, that are working at this intersection. Some completely in the fine art space. Um, we even had a person there, um, from Cirque du Soleil who was like talking about how they've, integrated robot stages and so on. Like there's some really interesting work out there. Um, but yeah, uh, but it's still kind of a small crew, but we're enjoying it. You've held a robot film festival and done some robot storytelling. How does that uh, take shape? What, what happens at those, play, at those events? Yeah, yeah. And you, so every year there's a, um, it's kind of a small festival, but it's a, it's a short films festival. So we'll have a couple hours of screenings of that the latest and greatest of robot short films. They can be real or fictional. There's always a lot of great music videos. They can be comedic or serious or sad or romantic. Um, and uh, it's, it's been a lot of different cities. Uh, it started in New York City, uh, which was really fun because we had a red carpet, like robot awards ceremony. Uh, so we, we're trying to basically get people talking across disciplines. We want artists to be there. We want filmmakers to be there. We want technology people to be there. And it's a, it's funny because so many of the years people think that the filmmakers are going to have the best films and they always have really great storytelling. Um, but like the, sometimes the guests of the audience come from like, wow, we didn't even know that this existed. Like there was one year, uh, 
there was one year we had uh, this this just balloon arm. I, I think it was like it, it like it was weird. It's like uh, it's it's a mylar balloon, and they inflate and deflate it, and it could reach up three stories. And so it was this controllable weird balloon arm and it was like a 46 second video but people are just like what is this this is just crazy <laughs> you know I was that's my reaction that's part of why I put it in the festival but it's just a great way to see what's out there and, and I really think that storytelling has the power to shape what we want to create so um, you know filmmakers can influence like even what occurs to us to build um, and also kind of critique some of what we've currently created but also robots are just very photogenic. So it's fun to watch them on camera. And it's much harder to read about something that moves than see it. I just read an article about the Consumer Electronics Show where they had a robotic, uh, emotional, playful cat and the big eyes and, and the cat can play with toys. And it was, I think, a big hit at the show. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, it's CES every year. It's always like robots are, are born stars. <laughs> One of your goals, you told me the other day, is to bring creativity and laughter and playfulness into technology and into engineering. What's missing and what do we need and how do we go about it? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, engineering is just such a creative discipline. Um, it was so interesting going to college and thinking, like, I didn't know exactly what engineering was, but I definitely thought it had something to do with with math and science, and, and that's true. Um, but what I didn't know is it also had just as much to do with art class, because that was the one class where you would just make something up and then like paint it or build it or sculpt it or design it. And, and engineering is such a creative process. Um, and, and like it's creative in figuring out like how to build it, but it's also creative in building out what you should build or what you should be trying to do in the first place. So um, I really like the idea of having more creatives, like and meaning more from like the humanities style, performing arts, like uh, just people with big imaginations in engineering because they can help us dream up the future. And so in the same way the Robot Film Festival lets the filmmakers sort of illustrate some crazy, wacky ideas or, or critiques, um, like having people that, that really think about people are, are a great way to make technology that can impact the world in, like, in let's say, charismatic ways. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, uh, you talked earlier, you mentioned briefly the idea of robot furniture, but I want to talk a little bit more about it because you've done some interesting experiments and scenarios where you actually use robot furniture to help people or encourage people to engage with one another in conversation or chessboards where they're, they try to engage you in play. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. We, um, we ran an experiment last year that was just presented um, at a conference uh, this past fall, what uh, we called the Chairbot Chess Tournament. And basically, it was just a ch normal chess table on a table, but, in a, but it was in this public atrium around a cafe. And the chairs basically were trying to recruit people to come and play chess. And so it was, <laughs> it was this six-week experiment in a public space, which is one of my favorite things, because rather than bringing people into a lab and, you know, hi, like working with hypotheticals, like if you actually just bring robots into a real-world environment, your data is valid, right? Like this is, this is the future. What would people do if you put robots in their lives? And so we've had, we had the, the chairs. There was a, like when it was the white turn, the white chair would try to get people in the black turn, and we were exploring different motion strategies and kind of person robot personalities to persuade people to come to the table and 
And it, you know, it, it, it turns out that moving back and forth right in front of the table, like just acts like a big old arrow. And like, people are like, what do you want? And like, ur, ur, ur. and then they're like, oh, okay, you want me to play chess? Okay, cool. Like, whereas like spinning in a circle, people are like, are you having fun? Are you dancing? Like, I don't want to sit on something that's spinning. Like, I don't want to fall on the floor. So, so spinning is a bad way to get people's attention. Um, but yeah, so, so, um, you know, sometimes we explore things through like remote control to try things out. But then once you actually evaluate what works best, you can figure out a really good way to program something in. Um, so with social robotics, sometimes, not always, but sometimes the hardest part of the problem is figuring out what will work with people. So we spend time experimenting. And then once you actually know the right strategy, programming it is easy. What's your next uh, avenue of research in the coming weeks and months? Uh, well, it is the first week of the term here at Oregon State. So this is a great question. Um, you know, I have, I have like maybe 10 students right now. So we work on, on different kinds of things. Uh, but uh, one of the projects that we've been working on for a couple years, just at the start of the year, is Resolution Bot. Um, so by which we mean New Year's Resolution. <laughs> uh, and we, <laughs> we have this robot and it drives around the robotics building and anyone that um, elects to can sign up and it just basically comes to your desk and says, hey, would you like a good time for a break? And they're like, sure, okay, go do 10 like squats or would you like to go on a walk or um, do some jumping jacks? And so it's, it's meant to kind of keep you on your health and, and nutritional plans. And then when you, when you, after you do your exercise, it has a little basket and offers you like a banana or a water. Um, and it, it's just been really like so I mean the resolution bot is the excuse to play with people but the thing that we're really interested in is how do people actually interact with this system um, what do they want for it do they get used to it over time because it's it's three weeks long and so people start building a relationship with the robot and some people like start joking around and so could we detect that and so we have the the robot sort of follow along with them um, so uh, again we're kind of studying people to make robots um, that are delightful I could definitely use one of those to help me meet my fitness goals. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been in I've robotics for a long time, but the having a robot come to my office door is, is so exciting. Like, I'm like, like <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, it's, you know, I, I can't always graduate students this way, but I'm like, I want every one of your theses to involve like you, you know, like filling my life with robots. Because <laughs> it's, it's still kind of theoretical for it to be an everyday experience, even for me. So, you know, this sounds like so much fun, right? We have all of these uh, emotions we're not only attributing to robots, but trying to have them convey emotions and, and all of this. Uh, so, and that's sort of on the fun side. But I want to go back to uh, the Netflix series, Humans. Mm -hmm. And it's this fascinating series, uh, for those who haven't seen it, about robots, a next generation of robots that have emotions, you know, the so-called synths. And... The series begins with some fairly benign, uh, you know, episodes of robot assistants entering homes, and they look human, they sound human, they feel emotions. But then you start to have kind of that clash between humans and robots, and then things get pretty, pretty serious. So, first of all, I want to ask you: How do you feel about this idea of these kinds of uh, emotional robots that? are so like us that eventually it's going to result in a kind of this us versus them uh, event. Yeah, I mean, uh, entertainment often uses robots to expose our fears about ourselves. Um, I mean, so like apparently like 
uh, the Homo sapiens like killed off the Neanderthals, right? Like, so, <laughs> like they are, you know, or there's other versions. That I don't know exactly the history. This human, like, uh, you know, human evolution is not my specialty. Um, but, but, uh, you know, like there, the tribalism is is something that is very concerning, like today across the world. Um, and and like our fears about what one group will do to another, or you know, not being included, like all the way from like middle school, <laughs> like it's, 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 it's scary. I mean, and, and so we're really social creatures. And so it always makes for really interesting storytelling. Now I will say that anyone that actually works in social robotics today across the planet, like, uh, like, at, you know, at least in research, like our goal is to make robots that meet human, like needs, right? Like we design robots for people. The reason why I study human behavior is, um, that it is easier to teach someone to like be able to point at a location and be like, robot, put that there. than it is to teach someone how to program like the robot operating system. Like, okay, now go to this Ross interface and go press this thing and then enter like the coordinates of the location where you would like them to put that plate. Like, so it is very efficient for robots to have some of those things. And, and if the robot looks sad when it makes a mistake, we are literally more patient with this. My, my friend Leila Takayama did this experiment where a robot was just trying to open doors, which is absurdly hard for robots, especially round doorknobs. Um, and, and so it was just like, it's doing this thing that we find so easy. And it's just like, are you an idiot? But when it looks sad, you're like, oh, okay. It is hard for you. I'm sorry that I was being mean to you in my head. I'll be a little bit more patient. So, so it's, 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 it's sort of interesting how we can use social strategies um, to help people meet robots where, there are, where they are, but also help robots meet us where we are so that we, we can just stay being people when we're interacting with them. But do you feel that sort of your efforts and the efforts of others to infuse emotions into robots and make them more social and their automatic kind of learning patterns could result in a scenario someday where the lines do get kind of scarily blurry between man and machine? Um, I don't think so. Um, but when people ask this question, sometimes I, I liken this to like, are you afraid of your children? Like, are you ever afraid that your children will one day develop the capabilities <laughs> that you have and that they will want to kill you? Like, the, the, so if you think about robots as, you know, things that we are like raising, like, well, like the only case where you would be afraid of your children if you did something really bad, right? Like, like there has been a problem in the development process for that to have happened. And so I, I do think it's important for us to think about the future and not presume that things will be well. In the same way a parent has to be responsible in how they raise their kids, we should be thinking about the ways in which we are incorporating technology into society. And, and you know, so I, I'm, I think collaborative robotics is, is, has a really po positive potential for impact over pure automation. Like, so the idea of designing a robot just to take someone's job is a very different design perspective than designing a robot that can help people like finish their jobs more easily or you know like in hospitals like nurses have all these back problems because they're carrying things like our people are moving them around so if a robot could help take away that part of the job that is actually helpful to the nurse and they can focus on their caring behaviors like i really think that that dynamic of a robot and a person working together to do something is a very powerful one um so so yeah I, we should think about the ways in which we are integrating robots into society um and it and building technology does not always turn out well. Um, but no, I'm not afraid that robots are going to um, become the new race that takes over the world. <laughs> Where do you see the field of social robot 
uh, robots heading in coming years? What will this decade be like and then the next decade? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I mean, it's funny because we, we do get to think in research about, you know, technology that might be like 10 or 20 years out, whereas usually in industry, if, it, if it's not a product in two to three years, like then you, it's just not worth investing in. And that is one of the reasons why I'm a professor because social robotics is still a pretty young field. Um, so I, I mean, just figuring out how to do it at all is, is we're still, it's, we're still very early. Um, I, I, my entire PhD thesis came from the first two weeks of this acting class that I took um, in the drama department on uh, movement. Uh, I think it was called movement for actors. Um, and I, I literally spent the next three years trying to get a robot to communicate via motion in, in, in a way that was similar to the first two weeks of that class. Um, That's amazingly complicated, <laughs> right? Yeah, we are complicated. I mean, one of the things that, that I love about what I do is, is that I constantly get to kind of bask in the glory of, of all of the things that we take for granted. Like, um, you know, just like it's so hard for autonomous cars to cars to actually make sense of the world and like we can see a path through a forest just because like of how the the leaves are slightly more beaten down even though there's pine needles and rocks and all these like we like our vision systems are absolutely amazing like and our ability to kind of you know feel like that someone isn't trustworthy like in like 30 seconds or like judge a job interview or decide who to talk to at a party like uh like it's it's very cool what we're capable of you know i mean i don't know if there's life in the extended universe but like like we are we are very rare and unique and lucky looking back at your evolution as a person and as a roboticist uh, and your interest in social robotics do you have any closing thoughts on how all of this work that you've done has influenced your thinking about humanity, humanness, uh, mind-machine communication, human-robot interactions, and all those deep things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, hammer see nails, but I, I mean, I, I think that the reason that, you know, that we exist, the, the things that really give us a joy are generally relational. I mean, I, I get a lot of pleasure from my work, but my, my friendships, my relationships, my children, like, the, the, the society and community that we build along the way, like is, is I think one of the most valuable parts of our lives. And um, it's been so fascinating to just sort of understand that if you really want to make a robot that could work with a person, then you have to make them like fun to be around. And like you, you'll get hurt if they don't, you know, remember the names of your children. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on like the, we use a lot of different metaphors in social robotics. So if it's your pet, you know, you would expect certain things, or if it's more of a childlike robot, or it's more of this. But I mean, just there's to any interaction, like people, patients will take their medicine more regularly if they like, if they trust the doctor and they like the doctor. Um, you know, coworkers will be better at getting stuff done together when they like each other. And so the, the social aspect of our existence is, I think, one of the reasons, like, you know, life is worth living. Heather, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Heather Knight is Assistant Professor of Robotics at Oregon State University. Her Charisma Research Group uses methods from entertainment to bootstrap the development of social robots. Dr. Knight's interests include playful social robots, robot ethics, robot theater, charismatic machines, and multi-robot, multi-human social interaction.
Knight also runs Marilyn Monrobot, a robot theater company with comedy performances and an annual robot film festival. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.